everyone. Welcome to the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lectures. And we also welcome those of you who are watching this lecture on Zoom. Um, pardon the problem. It just so happens that sometime this afternoon, the light bulb, uh, projector bulb in the main projector blew out. So uh, it's got to get <laughs> the people who teach in here tomorrow morning are going to be surprised unless they get in here at eight in the morning and fix it. So um, that's why we're using this other projector. Uh, those of you who are watching Zoom at home, it should look no different to you. So um, first of all, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, uh, the telescope next door will be open for your public viewing. Also, if you haven't had a chance to check out our new museum on the ground floor, I'll have the lights on and feel free to look at our displays and our touchscreen display as well. That's in the ground floor Stewart Observatory. Also, uh, I've decided not to have a public lecture on the 22nd of November. Everybody I asked said, get me in the spring. So we'll, we'll do extra lecture in the spring. So our next lecture, there's only one more lecture after this and it'll be one week, one month, excuse me, from tonight. But I'll talk about that when we're done. Without further ado though, I would like to, we're continuing our series of talks on the topic of James Webb Space Telescope. So tonight I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Andras Gaspar and Dr. Stacy Alberts. They are both, are you assistant or associate research professors? Assistant, assistant research professors here at Stewart Observatory. And uh, they work on the JWST team. Uh, we'll begin with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Gaspar. He received his PhD in astronomy here. Actually, it's now astronomy and astrophysics here at the University of Arizona Stewart Observatory. And Dr. Alberts received her uh, PhD from the University of Massachusetts, which I believe is in Amherst, Massachusetts. Yeah, cool. So without further ado, we're going to talk about mid-infrared imaging of circumstellar disks with the James Webb Space Telescope. We'll turn it over to Dr. Gaspar. Thank you so much. First of all, can you all hear me well enough through the mask and through this microphone? Huh? Okay. If, if not, yell at me and I'll try to speak even louder. You can't. Little louder, okay. I'll try to speak a little louder. And if it gets really bad, I'll maybe even remove the mask, hopefully not. So I'd also like to welcome all of you to the public evening lecture series here at Stewart Observatory. As you, if some of you have attended during this semester, I don't know if you have, you may have noticed that all the talks were centered around the James Webb Space Telescope and for a very good reason. We're launching in 39 days on December 18th. As, as long as everything is on Plan, as it seems like we are. We've even got about two weeks of reserve time, so we should make it this time. And my talk was concerning circumstellar disks and their observations with James Webb. Uh, in this title slide, you can see a telescope itself as it will hopefully look like in space unfolded and a simulation of one of the debris disks we will be observing with the space telescope. All right, of course something happened. Right. Will it work now? Oh, yes. All right. So what are circumstellar disks and why are they interesting to study? Well, the title slide sort of lets it away. These are really interesting systems where action happens, where big bodies hit each other and produce even more dust as they evolve. 
And they're also really interesting because they connect to planetary systems. To understand that, we have to know a little bit about how planetary systems form and evolve. And this little diagram should highlight the main uh, steps in a formation sequence of a planetary system. In the very beginning, we have a giant molecular cloud that starts contracting on its own. These molecular clouds are remnants, remnants of previous stellar generations, so they have hydrogen, helium, and lots of other heavier elements in them. And as they contract and fall on themselves, they collapse and they maintain uh, their angular momentum. And through the conservation of angular momentum, they collapse into a flat disk, produce a protostar in the center of the disk, and over time, a protoplanetary disk from which planets form. This is how all planetary systems form. And in the end, you're left with a star or multiple stars in the center, planets, and circumstellar disks. And we can see this actually happening uh, through telescopes. This, these are some really beautiful pro protoplanetary disks that we've observed in the Orion Nebula cluster. These are a few million year old systems, so very young. And we can literally see planetary systems in their formation. Uh, here, the background is backlit by really luminous stars in the center of the cluster. And we see many, many tiny little disks silhouetted against that backdrop. These are a few million year old systems where planets are forming right now. The center, really bright stars are also blowing off violently the outer layers uh, of these systems. And these are really beautiful images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Over time, these systems will evolve. We're going to have transitional disks where the gas is removed from the disks and planets continue to form. These are really beautiful images taken by ALMA, which is a radio uh, telescope array in Chile. This is HL Tau, image with uh, ALMA in 2015. And you can see these gaps within the ring itself. These gaps are uh, indicative of planets forming right now in that disk. You can also see this recent observation, so it's 2021, this is a new result of PDS-70, where we can even possibly see right now a satellite forming around a planet. So we, we've got capabilities to do this now in very young systems. Radio telescopes are fantastic at this. And planetary disks are also important because we know of one that's very important to us, the planetary disk or debris disk around our own sun. The most famous feature of the planetary disk around our sun is the Kuiper belt. The first member of that was Pluto, discovered in the early 20th century by Clyde Combo. It took a while for us to discover the next one. The next one was discovered in 1992, named QB1. And since then, about 3,000 other objects in the Kuiper belt have been discovered. Now, from extrapolations and so, we know that this is an enormous belt. It's located between 40 and 48 astronomical units. For those of you who don't know it, one astronomical unit is the distance between the sun and the earth. So it's very far away outside of the orbit of Neptune. And since then, we've discovered other members of this uh, belt. It's a really massive belt and it's a leftover primordial belt from the early formation time of the solar system. If we go inside, the slightly even more famous, for us at least, uh, component of our solar system is the asteroid belt, right? This is a <coughs> belt of bodies that are located between Mars and Jupiter. So between 2.1 and 3.3 astronomical units. These are also primordial members, planetesimals that were not able to coalesce to form a planet due to gravitational tugs from Jupiter. 
And over time, most members of the system were removed from Jupiter. But we do know that there are a lot left, and we can see that these were removed from the effects of Jupiter from the Kirkwood zone. These are gaps within the ring itself. We can also see some other really fun dynamical interactions of Jupiter with the system. If we derotate the evolution and keep Jupiter stationary, two really interesting populations of asteroids show up in our solar system. We have the Trojan asteroids uh, and the two Lagrangian points, 60 degrees plus and minus from Jupiter on their orbit. And these orbit around these two points. Interesting thing, James Webb is actually going out to a similar Lagrangian point out in L2, which if this were Earth, it's right there. Uh, and it's going to be orbiting around that point. Uh, another interesting group of asteroids that Jupiter is uh, gravitationally modifying are the Hildas. These are a 3-2 resonance with respect to Jupiter, and they actually move between L3, L4, and L5. So Jupiter is a really fun planet. It does a lot of things. <laughs> it protects us, and it also removes lots of bodies. A third component of the solar system, which is really interesting when it comes to disks, is the zodiacal light. Any of you have seen the zodiacal light before? All right, two, two people, three have seen it. Well, this is a really fun feature. If you're able to go out to a very dark sky, like super, super, super dark, and look up right after sunset or right before sunrise, you'll see a band of light where the sun went down or is going to come up. And this is due to the very tiny, say, 10 to 300 micron particles reflecting the sun's light towards us. So that's why you can only see it during uh, right after sunset or right before sunrise. And this is from a cloud of small dust particles surrounding us. And all other systems have similar things too. So we get a general idea of how disks may look like around other planets, right? We like to think of our solar system as an archetype system and go from there to understand how other planetary systems evolve. So we have very hot dust near the sun, we have an asteroid belt, and we have Kuiper belt. In between, near the sun, we're gonna have the terrestrial planets that are formed where you can have rocky things uh, condense out. At the ice line, you're gonna have asteroid, uh, outside of the ice line, you'll have the Kuiper belt with icy bodies on it. Now, how do we identify these types of systems? If I go back for one second, you'll see I marked that out here, the dust particles are gonna get really hot, 2000 Kelvin. The asteroid belt, much cooler at around 170 Kelvin temperature. But if you go out all the way to the Kuiper belt, it gets really cool at 60 Kelvin temperature. And some of you may know about black body radiation, but I'm gonna quickly cover it. If you take an object that's in thermal equilibrium, meaning all the particles inside have roughly the same temperature, their total emission spectrum is going to follow a curve like this. So it rises with the wavelength, peaks at a certain wavelength, and then drops back down. This is a characteristic profile of bodies that are in thermal equilibrium. So if you take a hot iron rod, say it's a 2000 Kelvin temperature, its emission is going to peak at around one and a half microns. That's why you can still see it with your eyes because there's still some red coming into the visible radiated part of the spectrum. If you look at a human, I don't think any of you have seen a human glow, but we actually all do glow. So a human's body is around 310 Kelvin in temperature. If you calculate what the peak uh, wavelength emission of that, that's around 9.3 microns, so around 10 microns. If any of you saw or were able to see an uh, infrared, you'd see all of us glow like this right now. This is how the room would look. And James Webb is really neat. 
it's going to be observing in this wavelength range, right? Where most astrophysical objects other than stars are emitting. So it opens up a really new phase space of observations. The Hubble Space Telescope, awesome telescope, it mostly observed in the visible part of the spectrum. So we're gonna really see some really fun stuff. Now, if we put our previous slide back on this black body curve, you'll see that hot dust, you can see it uh, around one and a half microns. The asteroid belt really shines at 15 microns due to its temperature. And the Kuiper belt will shine at around 70 Kelvin. It, you can see it at other wavelengths too, but that's where they emit their peak. And this is how we discovered the first debris disks too. This is, shows the spectral energy distribution of Vega, which is one of the brightest stars in the sky. The star itself peaks at around half a micron since it's a very, very hot star, but the belts around it peak at much further wavelengths. And this is how they were first discovered. Vega has been screwing with astronomers for like 40 years now. It used to be the standard star, and it turned out it's the worst standard to choose because of this. Okay, one thing you'll notice is that at optical near-infrared wavelengths, you can see all the components. Why is that? As I said before, the very small dust particles in them actually scatter back the light towards us. So they don't shine on their own, they're like mirrors reflecting the sunlight. So if you have mirrors, tiny, tiny mirrors, and a lot of them like smoke, if you see smoke in the right light ray, you'll see it scatter the solar light back. Same thing here, you can see uh, scattered light. And this is how we were able to first image debris disks. Uh, using optical scatter light. So this is the very first image of uh, debris disks by Brad Smith and Rich Terrell in 1984 using the DuPont two and a half meter telescope in Chile. The story goes, they were actually able to see the disk through an eyepiece of the telescope, which is crazy. And so this was the very first observation in 1984. They knew what to look for because this star also showed access, the same way as Vega. There were four of them, Vega, Fomalhaut, Epseri, and um, Beta Pictoris. These were called the Fab Four. It was the 1980. And so Beta Pic is a beautiful star. This is an observation of it uh, using HST. So in 2012, obviously things have gone better since then. Over the past four decades, this has been over-observed basically. Uh, and now we can see features in the system. And in addition, in 2009, a directly imaged planet was observed around this star. It's a huge deal. We actually are able to now see a planet orbit around the central star. And we can see that the planet is actually interacting with the disk since there's a slight gap that we can measure uh, in the disk at the region where the planet orbits. We've also observed a ton of other disks uh, in optical scattered light. This is a gallery of some of the most beautiful ones that we've seen. I'm not gonna go into details on them. And just to show you that we can see this got other wavelengths as well, not just optical wavelengths. This is one of the neatest ones. It's really close, large in the sky, relatively bright. This is the Fomalhaut disk. Uh, with HST and optical wavelengths, it looks really sharp. The best uh, image we have at uh, mid-infrared wavelengths was taken with Spitzer at 24 microns. But remember, Spitzer was a small telescope. Its diameter was 0.8 meters. With uh, JWST, we're gonna be observing at similar wavelengths, but the mirror is 6.8 meters across. So from here to the door, it's much larger. We're gonna get way better resolution images on par with HST just at 24 microns. Herschel at 70 microns and then radio observations at further wavelengths, all are able to see this disk and it's beautiful. 
you can see that the center part is actually still lighting up. That's an inner asteroid belt that we haven't been really able to spatially resolve. All right, so how are we going to look at these with James Webb? Now comes the fun part. Well, there's a method called high contrast imaging. And uh, if you're working in exoplanets, which is a very popular field in astronomy right now, what they like to say is it's like imaging a firefly next to a lighthouse. So imagine look, trying to find a firefly next to a lighthouse observed from like 1,000 miles distance. It's not easy. <laughs> and so the technique that's developed is called a coronagraph. And what you basically do is you take your finger, put it in front of the lighthouse, and whoops, there's the firefly. So, I mean, obviously this is a simple explanation, but the gen generic example is this. That's how it works. And this is a technique that was developed by Bernard Leo in the early 20th century. It's amazing. And he worked a lot on this. And this is a picture that he took of the solar corona. This is why it's called a coronagraph, because it takes images of the solar corona, at least originally it did. This, is, this image was taken in 1936. And you would think that this is a solar eclipse photo. It's not. This was taken through a chronograph, and there are the prominences and the solar corona beautifully imaged. So he really perfected the technique. And so James Webb has five detectors. Of these, or instruments, of these two, NIRCAM and MIRI, have their chronographs. So we're going to be using these two instruments to image debris disks using chronographs. Um, I'm going to first talk, I don't know if you can see it uh, well on this image, but there should be a stellar background here. And so this is the entire uh, imaging field of James Webb, and it's shared by these instruments. Each of them sample a different location of the field. And <laughs> NIRCAM is a really fun instrument, so it has a chronograph. This instrument was designed and built here at Stuart Observer, well, not built here, but designed and outsourced <laughs> building-wise uh, to other places, uh, Lockheed. And the principal investigator of NIRCAM is Marsha Riki, who works here as a regents professor here at Stewart Observatory. And the really ingenious design of this instrument is that it's fully redundant. They basically have two exact instruments glued together. As you can see, it's a carbon copy, the top side of the bottom side. And this is really important for NIRCAM because it's the main instrument of the telescope. And by what I mean is that it's the wavefront sensor. As you may have seen, James Webb has these segmented mirrors, and those need to be aligned to really high precision. And for that, you need an instrument that can actually help you align them, and NIRCAM is the one that does that. So being fully redundant is really important. And NIRCAM works at really good wavelengths from 0.6 to 5 microns. It has various modes, and it can image simultaneously at two wavelength ranges. So it's really good. And here's a chronograph for NIRCAM. It's a little mask that has various sized chronographs and a chronographic bar. And when you're imaging, they basically slide that down into the image field and block the stellar light so you can image the surroundings of the star. It can image at various wavelengths so you can study composition and green size distribution uh, within disks and many other things. Chronographs are not only good for disks or planets. <laughs> they can be used even in an extragalactic astronomy. The other instrument which is really important is MIRI. That's the one that uh, I'm mo mostly taking part in. It actually has four different chronographs that work at their specific wavelengths. These three are slightly different than the classic Leo chronographs. They're what we call four quadrant phase max 
chronographs, which means they actually work by offsetting the phase of the light that comes in and thereby nulling the starlight out. So it doesn't work by physically obstructing the view, but by physically interferometrically removing the star. And we have an actual classic layout for long wavelengths. Uh, MIRI, as its uh, name hints at it, it's a mid-infrared instrument. So it works at the mid-infrared wavelengths. It works between 5.6 and 30 microns, and it can image, it can do chronography, it can do spectroscopy. It's a fantastic instrument, but what makes it really outstanding is that it's cryo-cooled. Let me explain that for a second. Uh, previous infrared uh, observatories like Spitzer or Herschel, they carried a huge tank of helium, and they slowly evaporated that, and that kept the observatory cool. You need the observatory to be really cool, especially the components inside, because you're imaging at mid-infrared wavelengths. If you don't cool it off, the, what you are going to detect is the telescope itself. <laughs> so you need to cool them down. The entire James Webb Observatory is going to be at around 45 Kelvin, with the cryo-cooler MIRI goes down to 7 Kelvin. So it's really awesome. And it's cryo-cooled with a pump. The previous ones had the huge door that they had to take up with themselves, and it limited the lifetime of the observatory. This has its own refrigerator. And it's a refrigerator that can cool down to 7 Kelvin. Really nice. And this instrument also is a huge U of uh, University of Arizona contribution. Uh, George Rieke is the US science team lead of the instrument. So he got with that around 240 hours of guaranteed observing time uh, on MIRI. And Marsha Rieke for NIRCAM has around 900 hours of observing time. So U of A is getting a lot of time on James Webb and Cyclone. All right, I'm gonna now mention some of the programs that are gonna be done in year one. Hopefully I'm still in time. Yes, uh, that are gonna observing the disks. The first one is the a program that's gonna observe three systems that we call the archetypical disks. And this is a program that I'm leading. We're gonna be observing FOMAHOT, which I've talked about. Vega, which is around the really bright star. This is a little messy. As I said, Vega is the black sheep of debris disks. It, it's looking at us face on, so it's really hard to actually image. And then one around Epsilon Eridani, which is interesting because it's a solar type star. So it has a disk around a star that's similar to the sun. These two are around very bright stars. So yeah, it's gonna be fun, but this is more interesting because it's around a sunlight star. We have the NIRCAM scatter light disks. This is the other program that I'm leading that's gonna be observing five different sources in near-infrared wavelengths. They're, these are their images using the Hubble Space Telescope. We will be able to get slightly better resolution images since it's at shorter wavelengths. And we'll be able to study whether there are planetary interactions, the dust composition and dust size distribution within the disks with this program. The Space Telescope Institute at Baltimore is spending an enormous amount of time studying the beta pic uh, disk. They're literally throwing the kitchen sink at it. So whatever James Webb can do, they're gonna do on beta pic and learn everything about this one system. The MIRI European team, MIRI is mostly a European built instrument, uh, is gonna image TW Hydra in a very neat transitional disk. Uh, TW Hydra is really interesting because the inner ring itself is actually shadowing the out outer parts as it's orbiting, uh, really unique. And there, there's another program that's going to be looking at M stars, which are close to being failed stars. So really, really cool, really, really small stars. But we do see disks around some of them. And one of my favorite ones is AUMIC. This is also a nearby star observed edge on. And 
it has these little blobs that are slowly moving outward of the system at really high speeds. And we have no idea why that's really going on. There are some other uh, programs that are looking at disks with IFUs. These are instruments that are able to look, uh, take images basically at a really high fidelity of wavelengths. There you go, best way I'd describe it. And we're gonna be observing some of them, uh, some systems with these instruments. So Keitsu who works here has a program to observe five extreme variable disks. These are systems that vary their brightness on very short time scales. So they get really bright and then get really faint. And we have some ideas of what's going on. We have some papers on these, but more data is always better to understand these. There's a near-spec program that's gonna be observing two of the systems that I've already mentioned. And then finally, the MIRI uh, European team is also gonna observe these systems that I've mentioned using uh, their IFUs. I'll mention just one of the systems that we're gonna be observing ourselves. I don't have time to go through everything. We're gonna have a lot of data in cycle one. Um, so the disk around Vega, as I said, this is one of the archetypical disks. Vega is the brightest star you can see in the summer sky. So if you go out in the summer, look straight ahead, up ahead, you're likely gonna see Vega. Uh, and it has a huge disk around it. The star itself is extremely luminous, about 40 times that of the sun. And it's very close by. It's only like 25 light years distance. In astron astronomical terms, that's very nearby. And we, we know that there's a disk there, as I said, but we've never been able to spatially resolve, it, especially the inner part, which is going to be really curious. And this is what we expect to see with the MIRI chronographs at 15 and a half microns. You can see the inner ring, and then every other uh, wavelength will add to our knowledge. All right, I think, yes, I'm out. I'm going to say thank you and answer any questions. Teams working on JWST. Sorry, I got to move something on my screen real quick. Okay. And I'm really excited to be here with you this evening to talk to you about going into the mid-infrared with JWST. So we just heard about dusty debris disks and all the exciting work we're going to do with those. And now we're going to turn our attention to dusty galaxies and dusty black holes. Hi. There we go. Okay, so we're gonna start with a completely made up statistic that I literally just made up, which is that 93% of talks about galaxies start with this image. One of the most famous images taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. This is of course the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, or rather it's a portion of the Hubble Ultra Deep Field called the Extreme Deep Field, which you can probably guess is even deeper than the original. There are over 5,000 galaxies in this image. And if you're not familiar and you might say, wow, they must have looked at some really special path of the sky to get all this amazing uh, image and all these galaxies. But you may be shocked to learn that it's actually a very boring part of the sky. It was chosen to be boring in that, I mean, it's boring in that when we looked at it, we didn't see much of anything. And then we went with Hubble and we stared at it for about 23 days. And this is what we found. All of these amazing galaxies, a zoo of galaxies of all shapes and sizes stretching back to the early universe. And so it's with images like the extreme deep field that we explore how galaxies are formed and how they change over time. Extragalactic astronomy, which is what I study, is the study of galaxies outside our own to understand their components and how they relate to each other and how they relate to us. Many galaxies that we see are like the ones over here on the right. They are forming new stars and they have these gorgeous spiral arms. They can have all sorts of shapes and colors. Of these, some are, some are forming stars at just a few solar masses per year much like our Milky Way, while others can be forming thousands of stars at a time every year. 
these extremely active galaxies we call starbursts. And the goal of our, uh, our studies is to understand everything from the Milky Way to these starbursts, everything in between. And of course, not all stars or all galaxies are forming stars. We also see galaxies that have stopped forming stars. And these galaxies tend to be on the more red end of things. They tend to have different shapes, like this elliptical that we see up here in the top left. And we want to understand why galaxies go from forming stars to what we call a quiescent stage. And this is one of the main open questions in astronomy today, or extragalactic astronomy. And part of the reason that this is still an open question is that we have many spectacular processes that affect galaxies at different stages of their lives in the different environments that they live. Many galaxies contain supermassive black holes, which can be turned on eating gas and dust and stars in their host. So we see an example of this right here. The galaxy is actually a elliptical galaxy. That's it's that little yellow dot right there. And you can see that there's this huge jet of material being propelled out of the galaxy. And that is being propelled by an active black hole. So that active black hole can affect the galaxy. And we want to understand that relationship. In the middle here, we see two galaxies that are colliding. They're interacting with each other, disrupting their internal structure and creating these huge tidal tails, which can either trigger star formation or shut it down, depending on different circumstances. Colliding galaxies may just fly past one another, which kind of can create irregular shapes and disrupt structure, or they might eventually merge with one another to form an entirely new galaxy. And some galaxies we see live in these massive galactic cities that we call galaxy clusters, these galaxies all live in one massive dark matter halo, which has enough gravity to trap uh, gas and heat it in between the galaxies, creating a kind of wake that the galaxies can fly through. So here you see a galaxy up here in the center top that's flying, that's falling into a massive cluster. And you can see that the galaxy is this little spiral galaxy up at the top. And you see this huge trail of material coming off the back. The tail of this galaxy is actually longer than the galaxy itself. Spectacular example of Lamprecht's tripping. So, in order to understand these processes and how they transform galaxies over time, over cosmic time, astronomers take advantage of the entire electromagnetic spectrum, different parts of which tell us different amounts of, or different pieces of information. So, here you can see the extreme deep field again, and on the, the side we have a zoom in on one small patch of it, and then at the top you see this beautiful spiral galaxy that's kind of yellow. We're seeing it in visible light. And then when you look down in the near, near infrared, in the mid infrared, you see that it gets a little bit redder. It also gets a little bit less resolved because in the mid infrared, we've had smaller telescopes in the past. But you can see that it changes colors. And so this is giving us different pieces of information. Now I want to turn your attention away from this galaxy, which is a pretty nearby galaxy, very nice and big spiral arms. But that little circle above it, if you go back to the visible light image, you're kind of like, well, where is it? There's nothing there. You go back to the near infrared and far or the mid infrared, and you see that a compact red galaxy pops into view. And the reason for this is that this galaxy is actually really, really far away. Light takes time to travel to us. So a galaxy that we're seeing earlier in the universe, we're seeing it younger, the light has left it, takes a long time to travel to us. And as it travels to us, it encounters the fact that the universe is expanding. And so the visible light that left that galaxy has been stretched by the expansion of the universe to become more red. And so it pops out in the infrared when we didn't even know it was there in the visible. So that's a really cool way that we can see uh, galaxies in, uh, earlier in the universe. And of course, JWST is going to be really important in that. 
that's about the last thing I'm going to say about really early galaxies in this talk. If you want to know more and you missed the public lecture about JWST from two weeks ago, um, you can go check out the recording on the Steward website where they talk about that a lot. Okay, I'm going to talk about other cool things you can do with the mid-infrared. Okay, so what kind of light does JWST look at? This is going to be a little bit of review, but hopefully I'm going to approach it from a little bit different uh, direction. So JWST spans the near-infrared and the mid-infrared with these four instruments that we've already kind of talked about. Three of them are in the near-infrared, and then we have MIRI in the mid-infrared. And again, if you kind of speak astronomer lingo, this is covering like 1 to 30 microns. So this portion of the electromagnetic spectrum is a little bit redder than what Hubble was able to see. And it extends into the red, covering a little bit of overlap with what the Spitzer Space Telescope used to see. We no longer have Spitzer, uh, but we're going to have JWST. And you can kind of see the mirror comparison. So we talked a little bit earlier about the comparisons between the mirror sizes. JWST is obviously way, way bigger. Okay, and I'm, for the remainder of the talk, I'm going to focus on mid-infrared, uh, which we will see with mirrors. Okay, so when we talk about the mid-infrared, what are we actually seeing? Well, you can see a lot of things in the mid-infrared, but the main thing you're seeing, as we said earlier, is thermal energy or heat. If you had a chance to play around with, with an infrared camera, or like the picture of the people we saw earlier that were glowing, you pointed it at a cute dog, you would see that the places where blood has uh, accumulated in the dog's face, and where it's a little bit warmer are brighter than the other parts of the body, which are a little bit cooler. So that's a cute dog and people, and we know where they're kind of warm. But like when we look at a galaxy, what is actually being heated? What do we see when we look in the infrared? Well, actually, what we're looking at is dust. So being from Arizona, you're all very, very familiar with dust, right? Hopefully, you've never been caught in one of these things. So is it this kind of dust? Is this the kind of dust that's in space? Well, not quite. So dust here, but it, there are similarities. Dust here on Earth has a range of sizes. It's made of dirt, which is kind of larger grains, but it's also made of smaller particles that are biological material like pollen or dander. In space, dust also has a range of sizes. So some of the smaller molecules are these things that we call, this is a tongue twister, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And that is the last time that I'm going to say that in this talk. We're just going to call this smoky dust because it's small particles, and you can think of it as kind of like smoke in space. And then we have also large grains, carbon and silicate grains, that are kind of more on the sooty side. So they're kind of like soot. And if you immediately picture soot as something being like sticky and getting all over the place, well, you're right. And the same thing happens in space. These uh, larger grains are sooty, and they accumulate other things. They accumulate ice. They accumulate molecules. And they can build up things like the debris disk we were just talking about. And they can also, they are also really important for chemical reactions and things that happen in space. So dust is actually a small component of galaxies by mass, but it's really important for the things that go on. Okay. Okay, so dust also plays a very important role in how we view galaxies. So here we have a cartoon of a nice spiral galaxy that's forming tar stars in two star-forming regions. So the first star-forming region on the left is kind of closer to us. And if we look at it with our optical telescope, we see the nice optical photons that are being emitted by the nice new young stars. They're also emitting a lot of UV, but for now we're just looking with our optical telescope. But the star-forming region on the right, in the back, has this smoky dust in between us and uh, along our line of sight. 
And so what happens is the UV and the visible or optical photons come from these stars. It gets absorbed by the smoky dust. And then it gets re-emitted when the dust cools off. So it's being re-emitted as heat or infrared light. So if you were to look at this galaxy with your nice optical telescope and you were to say, I'm going to figure out how many stars it's forming, you might miss half of them. You might be fooled into thinking there's only half as much star formation going on as there is. So how often does this occur? Is this a really big problem? Do we have to worry about this? So where is the dust? Most stars are born in giant molecular clouds and form kind of a basic ecosystem that's shown in this diagram. So over on the left, we have our star or our regions of stars, because usually they're born in groups. And they're emitting UV and optical photons and really, really heating everything up a lot right around themselves uh, in what we call an H2 region. And then there's a slightly cooler region, the photodissociation region, where now you start to encounter molecules and stuff. And it turns out your smoky dust can live there. And then you go out a little bit further, it's a little bit cooler. Again, and you're in your kind of cold molecular cloud where lots of molecules can live, and then you start to encounter your sooty dust as well. And then the region between star forming regions, the region between these cold um, molecular clouds, uh, can also have the smoky and sooty dust. So basically, it's just everywhere. And it can really, really get in a way. So this is a beautiful demonstration of dust. These are the pillars of creation here in our very own Milky Way, the nursery for young stars. And this is a Hubble image taken with uh, visible invisible light. And so we have these giant pillars of dust. And I promise you that there are stars you can kind of see at the edges. There's little beams of light. There are young stars being born uh, in that dust. And then behind it, we kind of see a screen of you know some cloudy material and then maybe a few stars in the background, right? OK, now we go and we look at the pillar of creation in the infrared. This is still with HSP, so this is in the near infrared. Uh, I'm okay. Okay, you guys are okay, right? Okay, so uh, we can see that now you're actually starting to see a lot more detail. You're seeing through some of the dust. You can even start to see some of the young stars that are being born, and that kind of screen behind has, is gone now to reveal this huge field of stars behind the the, the dust that was there. So this is just with the near infrared with uh, HSP. So you still get some very dense uh, regions where you still can't peer through the dust entirely, which is why we need to go into even longer wavelength with JWST. OK, so this brings me to one of the main themes of the web programs that we'll be carrying out here at Arizona. Basically, we want to know what's hiding in there. There's a bunch of dust out in the universe, and we want to know what's hiding behind it. How many stars are being born behind these beautiful dust lanes that we see in these galaxies? So I hope I've convinced you that dust can hide a lot, but just in case you're not quite there yet, here we have a plot that is showing you on the y-axis the amount of starlight that can be hidden behind dust, and on the x-axis that's a function of the total amount of stars in the galaxy, so the, the total stellar mass of the galaxy. So as galaxies get more massive, they also tend to be more dusty, to the point where the most massive galaxies can have 80, 90, or even 100% of their starlight encountering dust along the way and being re-emitted in the infrared. So we can really hide a lot in there. So that means we need da -da -da -da, JWST, which is really real. And that's really me standing in front of it. Yay. OK, so we have a really real telescope, and now we need a really real instrument. So we heard a little bit about MIRI already, but I'm going to repeat it again because it's really cool. 
Uh, the mid-infrared instrument MIRI has three different modes. We have an imager mode with the chronograph that we talked about already. We have the medium resolution spectrometer and the low resolution spectrometer. So you can kind of see the imager there and the, you know, the, the sources that you might see in it. And then the medium resolution spectrometer is a very small uh, field of view, kind of up to the side um, of MIRI. And we already talked about MIRI's cool cryocooler, but we're, I'm going to say it again because it's so cool. So MIRI is unique in that, again, it's kind of looking at heat. And so we really don't want any other heat sources around. And the telescope is unfortunately a heat source. We need to cool that down. And so we have this cool, uh, this cryocooler for MIRI, which again, kind of works like your refrigerator, only way more fancy, which is super cool. And it gets us down to seven degrees Kelvin, which is seven degrees above absolute zero, which is just crazy. So if we take our giant mirror and our sun shield and our cryocooler and we add those all together, then compared to Spitzer, which is the most direct comparison to MIRI in terms of wavelength, we are greater than 50 times more sensitive. With the giant mirror, we get greater than seven times uh, the spatial resolution, and we get 20 times the spectral detail, which I'm going to talk a little bit more right now. Okay, so let's face it. One of the great fun uh, things about astronomy is the gorgeous pictures. So I imagine you're all super excited to see the web version of the Hubble Space Telescope gallery. Us astronomers are also extremely excited about the gorgeous pictures, but we also get extremely excited about these wiggly lines over here. So the reason we really like these lines is because they are the blueprints of astronomical objects. They show us where the different kinds of light are distributed. So here we see uh, the blueprint of a galaxy. So on the left, we have gas and stars kind of emitting in the UV and the visible light. And on the right, we have uh, dust kind of dominating in the infrared with a little bit of contribution from gas and stars as well. And you can see up on top, I've shown you where our cosmic smoke and our cosmic soot are kind of coming out in the, in the blueprint of this galaxy. So, we want to look, we're going to use both imaging and spectroscopy. So what does that mean? So when we're taking, when we're looking at this blueprint of a galaxy, so up on the left, or up on the right, we have a gray outline of a galaxy. And when we go and we take images of it, we pass light through filters, and we basically get back those blue dots. We're getting back very, a very poor sampling of the galaxy blueprint. Now, of course, you'd want all that gorgeous detail if you could have it, but it's very expensive. So when we do imaging, we can look at thousands of galaxies, you know, and get this poor sampling of the blueprint and kind of try and recreate it. But if we do want more detail, we do spectroscopy. So for spectroscopy, you're probably familiar with, you know, you take some white light and you pass it through a prism and you get back the different components, the different colors of the light. And so that's kind of what we do with our spectroscopy. We take our light, we split it into components, and you can get back very fine detail uh, covering this blueprint of a galaxy, but it's very expensive. So for context, the MIRI imager will be able to survey hundreds to thousands of galaxies at a time, whereas the spectrometer will get us one or two galaxies at a time. So we kind of need to do both. Okay, so here again is the infrared, and I've zoomed in for you. And you can see that the kind of our smoky dust, our small grains, is making this uh, in the spectrum or in the blue, in the blueprint of the galaxy is making these crazy peaks and valleys. And then when you get out to the city dust, you get a kind of a more smooth distribution. But JWST is going to be looking at these crazy peaks and valleys. And what that gets us, what it tells us, hidden in those peaks and valleys, is the physics of the dust itself. 
so we can say we can try to say what exactly it's made of, how big the grains are, how they absorb light. You know, we don't know these things uh, very precisely yet. And then also hidden in there, like I've been talking about, is the signature of the UV and optical light from young stars that's been reprocessed by the dust and it's coming to us in the infrared. Okay, but baby stars aren't the only thing that's being hidden by the dust. We think that most galaxies, particularly massive galaxies, have contain a supermassive black hole. So black holes, if you're uh, unfamiliar, are regions of space ruled by gravity, so tense that they warp space-time and allow neither light nor particles to escape. So massive black holes tend to live at the centers of their galaxies and can be active, so they're eating gas and stars and dust that's very close to them. The active ones likely affect their host galaxies by ejecting material and having winds and eating up the gas that those galaxies need to form stars. So we want to understand the relationship between black holes and their hosts. So in, 19, uh, in 2019, we had a very amazing bit of excitement when we got the first direct image of a black hole revealed by the Event Horizon Telescope. So this black hole lives in M87, which we saw earlier. This is elliptical galaxy with this massive jet and it's very close nearby. So we were able to take this gorgeous image of the black hole itself. So this is really cool. Uh, but sometimes black holes can be really hard to find. So here on the left, we have a local galaxy called ARP220, a very famous galaxy. And it's a very massive galaxy. And by all of our theories, it should have a massive black hole in there. But we can't see it. We don't know if it's in there or not. And I bet you can guess the reason. It's dust. So galaxies that are actively feeding, called active galactic nuclei, kind of form their own ecosystem, like the stellar nurseries that we looked at a little bit earlier. You have the black hole in the center. You have the accretion disk of material that it's eating directly. And that material is being way heated up, very high energy. And so it's kind of emitting in the x-rays, very, very high energy. But then, oh, and you have your jets of material that can be expelled. But then kind of around it, you get this donut of material that we call a torus. And that can be a bunch of clumpy gas and dust. So you can imagine that this asymmetrical configuration, how you look at it will determine how, what you see. So if you're this telescope down on the bottom and you're kind of looking into the torus, you might see the accretion disk. You might see the jet. But if you're that telescope up on the top and you're looking straight down into the dust, well, you're just going to see dust, right? It's going to be absorbing a lot of those high energy photons. And so you're like, hmm, is there a black hole in there or not? Not really sure. So now we're going to go back to our blueprint. So when we look for AGN in galaxies, we look at the galaxy's blueprint, which can contain clues as to whether there's an AGN there or not. So here we have the blueprint of a galaxy, which unfortunately is flipped around from what I've been showing you earlier. So infrared is now on the left side. That's the part that JWST will see. In the middle, you have the optical, which is what Hubble sees. And then way on the far right, you have the x-rays, which are looked at by uh, facilities like the Tondra um, x-ray facility. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to take this galaxy blueprint, which is the kind of faint uh, gray line that we see there. And we are going to turn on its AGN. And we're going to increase the amount of stuff that that AGN is eating. So the more it's eating, the more it's emitting. So let's see how this changes the blueprint. Ready to go? All right, there you go. You can see that it changed the blueprint 
quite a bit. We got a lot more emission at basically all wavelengths. But the real uh, noticeable difference is in the optical, where we pumped up the emission a lot and added a bunch of crazy emission lines on top. And then even bigger is the signature in the X-ray. So stars can only produce a certain amount of X-rays, even the most uh, energetic stars. But with an AGN, you can produce way more X-rays. So it just, if you see that amount of X-rays in a galaxy, you know that there's an active black hole in there. And so if you want to look for AGN, you say, okay, I'm going to go to the X-ray. I'm going to look for all the AGN that way. And we're fine. We're done, right? But of course, not so fast. So now what we're going to do is we're going to change our line of sight so that we're no longer looking into the donut, but kind of along its edge. So there's a bunch of dust in our way, and we're going to see how the blueprint changes. So this galaxy is still going to have an AGN in it, or we're going to put a bunch of dust in our way. Whoops. Yep. We lost all our optical. We lost all our x-ray. What are we going to do now? Well, of course the answer is we're going to go in the mid-infrared, right? We're going to go look at this guy with JWST, and that's going to be the only way that we can find this massive black hole that's eating here, because otherwise we've lost all our signatures. Okay. So that is basically the theme of two of our major programs here at the University of Arizona in order to understand how galaxies form stars and how their black holes affect how they change and grow. We first have to find all the hidden star formation and black hole activity. Once we account for all that, then we have a full look at the population and can start to say, okay, here's how the relationship between these things works. So in preparation for JWST, we've gone to the uh, Hubble Ultra Deep Field. So that is the extreme deep field again that I'm showing you. And the outline there is one uh, imager field of view from MIRI. And we've gone to this field and the area surrounding it. And we found all the AGN and all the black holes in every way that we can. We've looked with Hubble, we've looked with Chandra, we've looked with Spitzer, we've even looked with radio telescopes here on the ground with a very, very large array. So we have accounted for as much black hole activity as we possibly can. And then we're going to go on with JWST with one of our cycle one programs, and we're going to finish the job. So we have 15 pointings of the Miri imager, so covering 15 times that area. And we're going to find all the hidden AGN that we've been missing, add them to the ones we know about so that we have that full population. And then at the same time, we can go in and find the hidden star formation and account for all that as well. So this is uh, George Rieke here in Arizona is the PI, and then we are a full Arizona team. Um, on this project. All right, and then we have one more project. So that was our imaging project, and I also talked about spectroscopy. So we're going to use spectroscopy to peer into some of the most stubborn, most dusty galaxies that are nearby. So these are objects like ARP 22, or ARP 220, wow, ARP 220, which is nearby and very, very confounding because we just, x ray is inconclusive. We just don't know if there's an AGN in there or not. So we're going to go in with the MIRI MRS, medium resolution spectrometer, which in that image of the big galaxy there, you can see the, the big rectangle is the imager field of view, and the little rectangle is where we get the spectroscopy. So we really got to put it right on the center there where the black hole is going to be, uh, because it's a very small field of view, unfortunately. But we are going to go in, and we're going to look for, so now it's a little bit different than what we've been talking about. It's not just looking at the dust. It's looking at a particular atomic line. So in this system, there's going to be neon. Uh, the neon is going to be floating around. And if there's an AGN that's energetic enough, it can kick that neon up into a high transition 
a transition that only the AGN can kick it up into. And if we see that line sitting on top of our mid-infrared dust, then we know that there's an AGN in there. And that's kind of the only way that we can go in there and figure out that it's in there or not. So this is a joint program. Again, George Rieke is a PI. There's another portion of the program where there's a, um, Dan Dickin is the PI. So it's joint between us and some of our European colleagues. And those between those two things, uh, that's how we're going to go find all the AGN and all the star formation. And of course, there are a lot more. We just heard about some awesome debris disk programs. There's a lot of other programs here at the University of Arizona. There's uh, general observer programs in addition to our guaranteed time programs. And we're really looking forward to showing you guys all the beautiful images and telling you all about uh, our amazing results after the launch in 39 days. Yay, thank you for listening. Stacy, and thank you very much, Andras. We have plenty of time for questions. I'm going to give your microphone back to you so that you can answer questions. And do we have any questions from the audience? Yes. Uh, in the diagram uh, that showed the, the corona graph disks, there were several circular disks, which is what I expect. But it looked like there was also one that was oblong and funny looking. Uh, did I interpret that correctly? Or is that, do you have some non-circular disks in the coronagraph? For those of you who are watching us on Zoom, if you have a question for either Stacy or Andras, please type your question into the chat box. We have a question up here. Stacy, I'd like to go back to the pictures you showed of this uh, uh, Pillars of Creation mm -hmm. from the Hubble Space Telescope. The first one was in, the, in regular light, mm -hmm. and the second one was in infrared. This is the infrared one, right? Mm -hmm. Compared to the one in regular light, and not talking about as an astronomer, <laughs> which is the better picture? Which sells you the sells you the most? I mean, that's that shows you something. But the other thing is, it, well, what do you mean? It's, it, it was all, almost invisible. 
Is that what's going to happen when they when they take take these pictures with the infrared? <laughs> you mean is the pretty thing going away? Um. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, uh, we're, well, what we're seeing is it's kind of hard to see because there's this field of stars behind it, and then there's fields in the actual stellar or there's stars in the actual stellar nursery itself. And so, if you want to study this and you want to understand the stars in the stellar nursery, you would kind of use something to get the distance to, to them, you'd be able to identify which stars are in the stellar nursery, and then you don't want all that dust in the way. It's actually pretty funny because, I mean, I work on dust, so I love it, but a lot of astronomers hate dust. It's in their way. They want to see this. They want to see through it and see what's behind the dust. So it kind of depends on what you're going after. I mean, this tells you a lot, too. It tells you some interesting things in the, in the optical light in terms of the dust, you know, how it's formed and it's, its structure and everything. But if you want to see what's going on in there, you got to go and you got to get rid of that dust and see through it. <laughs> there are going to be pretty PR pictures, just not of yeah, this. I mean, I mean, I'm biased. The infrared picture is better. Will the Eagle Nebula be looked at both with MIRI and with uh, NIRCAM? I don't actually remember if there are cycle one programs to do that. Um, we're not in star formation, yeah. so I, okay. I, I don't know the exact. <laughs> okay. Uh, other questions for either of our speakers? Yes, over here. Let me bring the microphone to you. Given that Webb is a million miles away from Earth and Hubble is in low Earth orbit, and they both have near-infrared capability, it, is that spacing sufficient to get stereo views of the same object? That is a good question that I, I mean, never considered. Define the object you want to look at, right? You, you need to have parallax for that to be meaningful in any other way. And that offset is not that great for anything extrasolar. Okay. Which I know that NASA in the past has had joint uh, uh, proposals where you could simultaneously observe with Chandra and Hubble, for example. Um, is Hubble still going to be operating while James Webb is operating? <laughs> and are, did you have you ever heard? Are there going to have any sort of joint uh, simultaneous observation uh, opportunities? I mean, you could submit to cycle one programs that are JWST legacy programs to HST or something. I don't forget what it was called. Yeah. Um, but whether they're observed at the exact same time, I don't know if that's easily coordinated or not. Yeah, so you um, mentioned cooling MIRI down to seven Kelvin. Uh, that's with a heat pump, right? How are you radiating that? Like out into space that has to go somewhere. They rate it on display. I don't know the exact design. No, but that's actually the really cool. So you might wonder why JWST looks the way it does. Okay, so I got one picture up there. You know, most of the telescopes that we have, they kind of are a tube and there's a mirror in there. And you're like, well, isn't that better? Aren't there little like space rocks that are going to come in and like hit it and everything? But we needed to design it like this because we do need to radiate that heat off into space. And so the open design plus the sun shield. So we didn't really cover this, but the sun shield is always going to be in between the mirror and the instruments and the sun. So it's literally a sun shield. Between the open uh, ability to radiate off in space and the sun shield, that gets us down to our 40 or so degrees Kelvin that most of the telescope and instruments are going to operate at. 
And then the heat pump that we talked about, the little refrigerator, is what gets us back to, down to that seven degrees Kelvin for Miri itself. Hmm? Okay, I don't see any questions in the Zoom chat. Any other questions from our audience? Okay, one more. How would you uh, um, adjust its trajectory or how are you gonna be how able to move it? How do you point it at things? Yes. So, so DWST is gonna be kind of in a little orbit around L2, but it's not really a stable orbit. So we need to do two things. We need to do station keeping and we need to do actual pointing, right? And so I don't know, they, I mean, we have gyros, right? And then we expend fuel to do the pointing. So I don't, I can't, I'm not an engineer. I can't explain like the perfect engineering theory. But the important part to me is that unfortunately we're going to be spending that fuel uh, for the station keeping and for the pointing. And that is what limits the lifetime of the telescope. So we do need to actively point at things using these little, you know, fuel jets uh, to, to move the telescope. Yeah. If I can add, so you offset the momentum of the gyros through the expensing of the fuel. It works a little bit than HST. HST is orbiting around Earth, so it can use a magnetic uh, detorquing to lose momentum. James Webb's lifetime is going to be limited by the fuel, which is needed to use to offset the angular momentum, and pointing is done through the gyros. Okay. He's better at this than I. So I'd like to remind you that our next lecture. Oh, did you? No, no, no. no I just like to remind you that our next lecture, our last one of this semester, is on December the sixth. Monday, December 6th, Dr. Jin Yi Yang and Dr. Feige Wang are going to talk about peering into the early universe with JWST, the most distant quasars in their environment. So they're going to extend the picture even further out into the universe, which means further back in time. Our telescope is open. I was just up there earlier because some of my students were observing. Jupiter's up, Saturn's up. If you've never seen it through a large telescope, feel free. It's the white building next door. Go up two flights of stairs. And on the ground floor is our little museum that we're putting things together. And feel free to look in there as well. Let's thank Dr. Andras Gaspar and Dr. Stacy uh, Albert's one more time.